Good morning and happy Father's Day to everyone. Um, I don't know about you, but I think illusions are pretty fascinating. I remember as a kid, I would take books and do the optical illusions, and it just was mind-blowing. And sometimes they can be frustrating, but mostly they're fascinating. Um, Scientists tell us that illusions are ultimately less about what our eyes see and more about what our brain thinks. And so I want to show you an example of an optical illusion, and there's going to be words up on the top that kind of direct you. So look at those as you watch this image, and I'll show you what I mean. Pretty neat, isn't it? Our eyes saw one thing until our brain was activated to see something different. The actual image never changed. It was just what we perceived that changed. You've heard the saying, seeing is believing, but obviously that's not always true. Perhaps more accurately, we will, what we believe will determine what we actually see. And this is true from a spiritual perspective as well. Just think about the life and ministry of Jesus, right? So many people witnessed the miracles that he performed. Uh, Hundreds and hundreds of people saw the very same thing. And yet, when it was all said and done, some believed, but most of them didn't. Why is that? Why is seeing not always believing? Well, the Bible explains it by telling us that belief is not necessarily based in our brain or in our, our eyes. It's ultimately based in our heart. That's why Paul prays for the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, and he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, what are the surpassing greatness of his power towards those who believe. Those are some incredible things, the, the hope of his calling, the, the riches of his inheritance, the greatness of his power, but each of those things our heart issues. And if we do not see through eyes of the heart, we cannot ever discover these truths. This morning, we will encounter a man who believed in what he could not see. And it will be in stark contrast to those who could see but did not believe. The difference between the two is a matter of the heart. One found truth through the eyes of faith. The other was blinded by selfish pride. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we know how prone we are to be blinded by our pride. Our selfishness can stand in the way of seeing truth that is right in front of us. 
Well, Father, when we open your word this morning, your truth will be right in front of us. And I pray that your spirit will open our eyes to see truths that we would otherwise be blinded by apart from your enlightenment. Would you open, would you enlighten the eyes of our heart? Help us to see truth in that very depth of our soul so that it ultimately changes what we think in our brains, what we see with our eyes, and how we live with our lives. Lord, that is our prayer as we come to you this morning, and we pray this in your name. Amen. So if you would, turn to John chapter 9, and we're going to look at the man born blind. John chapter 9, the man born blind. As we look at this miracle together, you're going to notice that it receives some particular attention, some really extraordinary attention in You'll understand why as we go through, because the miracle in and of itself is really quite simple. Uh, Begin reading with me in chapter 9, verse 1. And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Jesus, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he said this, he spat on the ground and made clay out of the spittle and applied clay to his eyes and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which translated means sent. And so he sent him away and washed, and he came back. See, the neighbors, therefore, those who previously saw him as a beggar, were saying, is this not the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but it's like him. He kept saying, I'm the one. Therefore, they were saying to him, how then were your eyes open? And he answered, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and received sight. And they said to him, well, where is he? He said, I don't know. Again, this miracle will receive extraordinary attention, but it's pretty simple in how things took place. Jesus and his disciples walked by and saw a man that had born blind. And very likely, this man, as we would see later in the passage, was there begging. That's how they survived during that culture. So seeing the man, the disciples asked, who sinned? This man or his parents? They assumed that the blindness was the result of sin, and they speculated about how that might have taken place and who was responsible. Was it a sin that had been passed down from one generation to the next, so maybe his parents were responsible and then he bore the weight of that? Or was it some sin that actually took place with the child in the womb, which both were explanations of what might have happened during that Day. But notice how Jesus rejects the wisdom of the day on grounds of speculation. At best, the disciples were guessing. It was an opinion based on an assumption. And Jesus said that neither assumption was true. The blindness was not the result of a wrong that had been done. The blindness was an opportunity for God to make things right. And so seeing this teachable moment, Jesus performs this miracle, and he does so by spitting on the ground and making mud in his hands and then smearing that onto the eyes of the man born blind. 
And then he tells him to wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, the pool of Siloam is significant to this story because this took place right around the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles. And during that feast, there was a ritual performed by the temple priest known as the outpouring of water. And what would happen during this ritual is that the priest would make a procession all the way from the Temple Mount, which is literally on a mount, and they would go down the hillside, it was a pretty steep hillside, to the bottom of the city of David where they would find the Pool of Siloam. They would then fill jars with water out of the Pool of Siloam. They would then march back up to the temple where they would pour that water into the basin that was used for ritual cleansing for those who were offering sacrifices. That's where Jesus instructed this man to go. And obviously, there would have been a lot of attention there at the Pool of Siloam. So this man pushes his way through the crowd. And as soon as he made it to the water and washed his eyes, it says instantly he could see. But as he made his way back, the people could not believe what they were seeing. In fact, some of them didn't believe. They said, there's no way this could be the man who was born blind. Others were saying, well, yeah, it kind of looks like him. Yeah, it looks like him, but it must be somebody different. Because they could not believe what didn't make logical sense in their brain. Because remember, it's not what we think often that causes us to believe. It's the eyes of our heart. But the man born blind kept explaining, it is me. (laughs) It is. I I was blind. But now I see, and he told them how the man who was called Jesus took mud and wiped it on his eyes and told him to go to the pool of Siloam. And and when he did what the man instructed him to do, he was instantly healed. The people who saw what was going on said, okay, well, where is he? Well, having never seen Jesus with his own eyes, he couldn't tell them. I don't know. Look at verse 13. They brought him to the Pharisees. They brought to the Pharisees him who was formerly blind. Now it was Sabbath on that day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Again, therefore, the Pharisees who were asking him how he received his sight, and he said to them, He applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them, and they therefore looked to the blind man again and says, well, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. Here's the first of three interrogations that are going to take place by the religious leaders. Remember, I told you this miracle has some extraordinary attention. And so this is the first of three interrogations. They listen to the man's explanation, and some of the Pharisees, probably most of them, immediately dismissed it. They determined that that Jesus must be sinful because he did not keep the Sabbath, at least not according to their rules. Because the rabbis had determined that healing on the Sabbath was a violation of the law, that it was work. And so nobody sent by God could violate God's law, so Jesus must be a sinner. But they didn't give any consideration, mind you, to the fact that maybe their rules were wrong. After all, 
They are the ones who had determined how God's law applied to everyday life. Instead of looking back at God's word to see if maybe those rules were a little bit off base, they simply applied their rules. They could not see truth because they were blinded by pride. They were unwilling to admit that they might be wrong. But at least there were some, and I think it was probably the exception, who tried to at least investigate God's word, to consider God's word. After all, the Old Testament does describe signs that would be performed by the Messiah. And this particular miracle happens to be one of those signs. So maybe Jesus wasn't a sinner. Maybe he was sent by God. So they couldn't resolve this debate amongst themselves, so they turned to the man born blind and they asked him, so he's the one that healed you. Who do you say that he is? He was very clear. I think he was sent by God. I think he's a prophet. At the very least, that's what I believe. Now remember, this man has never seen Jesus with his own eyes. He's not even entered into any meaningful conversation with the one who has healed him. But based on his personal experience, Jesus must have been sent by God. Seeing through eyes of his heart, he knew that God was at work. And that fact was undeniable in his mind. Look at how he continues in verse 18. The Jews, therefore, did not believe it. And so they, that he had been blind and he received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we don't know that either. Ask him. He is of age. He shall speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess him to be the Christ, believing that Jesus is the Messiah, he should be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So since the religious leaders didn't agree with the opinion of the first interrogation, they sought to discredit his message. They go and find the parents. And I just want to say here that this is often the pattern of those who do not see with eyes of faith. They're always looking for ways to discredit what they're unwilling to believe. And that's what we see happening here. So they go find the parents, and they ask if this is the case, and the parents affirm the man's story. They say, yes, this is our son. He, he was, in fact, born blind, but now he sees. And so they respond, and they say, well, but how does he see? See, the parents knew this was a trap, though, because verse 22 says that they were afraid of the Jews. They were afraid because Jesus had become an enemy of the religious leaders, and supporting that enemy would mean rejecting their leadership, and rejecting the leadership of the religious Jews would have come with a severe rebuke. It says in this case that they would be put out of the synagogue. But we need to understand that this is much, much more harsh than what we might realize. Because to be put out of the synagogue at its highest form was to become an outcast among the Jewish society. They would be cut off from all fellowship with their fellow Jews. They would not be allowed to worship 
at the temple, they would be like a leper, an outcast who was considered to be perpetually unclean. That's what it would have meant to be put out of the synagogue. That's why they were afraid. Because the support of that culture was from the people in which they lived in that community. And to be cast out of that community was to be literally left to yourself. So they tell the leaders, this man is our son. He was born blind and he has been healed. To those things we can attest. But how this happened, we cannot explain. If you want to know that answer, you're going to have to go ask him. So they do. Look at verse 24. So a second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, Give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. He therefore answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. They said therefore to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? It's not that complicated. You do not want to be one of his disciples too, do you? And they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he is from. Maybe they should look. The man answered and said to them, Well, here's an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners But if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, you were born entirely in sins and you are teaching us. And then they put him out. So, like I said, this is interrogation number three, and as I mentioned in the beginning, this receives some extraordinary attention. You don't see this with any other miracles, do you? I mean, this is three intense interrogations to figure out exactly what happened here. And in these verses, we find out why they go to such lengths. They begin this interrogation with an opening statement saying, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. And I want you to notice how they have now shifted from the credibility of the miracle, because that has been clearly established. This man was born blind, but now he sees. People can attest to it, including him and his parents. And so that fact's been established. So now they're turning to the credibility of the one who performed the miracle, but it seems as their opinion has been established on that one as well. They essentially say, we know you've been healed, but the one who healed you is a sinner. This is a judgment based on the fact that Jesus broke their rules, not the law. And we know all throughout the Gospels, when they cannot explain the power with which Jesus performs his miracles, they often associate it with Satan. It's a satanic power that is performing these miracles. So the man responds, I don't know if he's a sinner. But what I do know is that he has the power to heal. I was blind. But now I see. So the religious leaders press him. They said, well, we know that, but how? How exactly did this happen? And I think the man realizes at this point, as he's explained, as his parents have explained, as he's gone through the details multiple times, that they're not interested in fairness. Instead, they're trying to manipulate the situation 
to affirm their own opinions. This is what's called leading the witness. They're trying to get him to say what they want to hear. So the man born blind turns the tables and he says, why are you so interested? Do you want to become one of his disciples? <laughs> now, this is a dangerous move. This is like poking the bear, okay? So the religious leaders revile him. They basically make fun of him. They belittle him. They attempt to put him in his place by highlighting their authority. After all, they are disciples of Moses. And what they mean by that is Moses was responsible for giving and administering the law. And that responsibility has been passed down to them as religious leaders. Their pedigree as biblical scholars far surpasses this man or even Jesus. In that case, the man says, why do you know so little about the one who can do so much? In other words, you may be good at teaching God's truth. But Jesus is good at fulfilling it. Because we all know why you and everyone else are so interested in this miracle. No one has ever opened the eyes of a person born blind until me. The reason no one has ever seen this miracle is because this miracle has been reserved for the Messiah. That's why the religious leaders were so interested. This is a messianic miracle. The man born blind is confronting the religious leaders on the truth they refuse to accept. Only the one who is sent by God could do this miraculous work. But his words were an offense to their pride because, again, they were admit, unwilling to admit that they're wrong. And just like they did with Jesus, they dismissed the whole situation by calling him a sinner so that anything he says must not be true. And when it says they put him out, they did to him what his parents were afraid of them doing to themselves. They cast him out of Jewish society. They separated him from the community of the Jewish people. The man born blind has now been declared perpetually unclean. Now think about that. The man born blind, who was already an outcast of society, has now been considered perpetually unclean like a leper. And so now everybody's going to stay away. He's kind of gone from the frying pan into the fire. <laughs> Look at how it continues in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had put him out. And finding him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the Messiah? He answered and said, and who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things, and they said to him, we're not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see your sin remains. First, I want you to notice the initiative that Jesus took to go and find this man. He knew the significance of what had been, the judgment that had been passed on him, that he had been put out, cast out of that Jewish culture. And so he goes and finds this man, and he asks this man a question that I believe his heart was already primed to hear. He asks him, do you believe in the Messiah? 
we've already seen from our passage that clearly this man knew that the miracle that was performed had never been done. He knew that he had been healed by a messianic miracle. So he asked Jesus, who is he that I may believe in him? And I believe what he's saying here is very clearly, yes, I do believe. Can I see him? Can I see him? Because keep in mind, up until this moment, this man has never seen Jesus with his own eyes. This is the first conversation that they have ever had together. So Jesus identifies himself as the Messiah, and immediately the man reveals what his heart has already believed, and he worships him in faith. Apparently, the Pharisees were standing right here when this whole conversation was happening because they heard what Jesus said next. Jesus tells them why he came into this world. He came into the world to give sight to those who are blind and to reveal the blindness of those who think they can see. Being true to form, the Pharisees assume, well, you're obviously not talking about us because we can see, right? And much to their surprise, Jesus essentially says, no. No, you can't. Because if you can't see your sin, then the eyes of your heart are blind. You're blinded by pride, because you are unwilling to admit that you might be wrong. Only those who acknowledge the darkness of sin can see the light of salvation. See, I don't have any doubt that selfish pride is still the primary obstacle to sincere belief, even in our world today. What we see happening in this event is happening every day in the world in which we live. But at least as far as I'm concerned, when I think through this passage, probably the most penetrating moment for me took place in that conversation between Jesus and his disciples because I could see myself very much being like one of those disciples. See, the disciples were quick to make about a judgment about someone they had never met before. Do you notice that? They applied the wisdom of the day to determine the condition of another man's soul. Much like the religious, they gave him a label before they ever heard his story. They asked, who sinned? They did the same thing that the religious leaders did. When they confronted the man, they said, we know he's a sinner. How did he do the miracle? Well, this man's doing, the disciples were doing the same thing. We know he's a sinner because he's blind. So who sinned? Himself or his parents? In my opinion, I think we are often too quick to do the very same thing today. We watch the news. We listen to people who run in circles along with us. We adopt the opinion of the day. We make judgment about people that we have never met in our life. We form groups of like-minded people who then make judgment upon other groups who don't think like we do. But the lesson Jesus taught his disciples is clear. Don't make a judgment if you don't know the other person's story. Because within every person's story, there is a place for the gospel to be applied, an opportunity for God's redemption to be put on display, just like we see in the blind man. We should always be looking for ways in which God can redeem and not for things in which we should condemn. Within every story, 
We need to see the hope of salvation. But we can only see that if we look through eyes of faith. The disciples would have walked right past the man born blind, and I'm not so sure that every one of us would have done the very same thing. But Jesus helps us understand the importance of entering in. And I believe the church would be in a much better place generally if we would be willing to do the same. Before we make a judgment, we need to listen to their story. And if we can't hear their story, then don't make a judgment. As a Christian, you should always be looking for ways for God to redeem, not for reasons you should condemn. The Bible says be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Don't just walk by and pass judgment on other people. Bend your knee in loving care and listen to their story. Look for ways to enter in. Because within every person's story is an opportunity for the gospel to be applied. God has a way of taking our mess and turning it into our message and that is true for every single person created in his image. He wants to take the mess and turn it into a message of his redeeming love. And if we don't ever listen to the story, we can never see that ending. And so this morning I've asked Brian to, to share his story with you. And I want you to listen closely to God's redemptive work in his life as we finish up this morning. So Brian. Good morning again. Um, my name is Brian. I have a new life in Christ, and I'm being rescued from sins of lust, anger, and blindness due to pride. I want to share a snapshot of my story from about starting eight months ago, or ten months ago, rather, when we started what you'll be hearing more about, this regeneration uh, program. So at the time we started Regen in August of last year, Though I was your worship pastor and probably looked put together on the outside, I felt stuck, angry, resentful, and discontent on the inside. I had been through a similar program at another church back in 2010, uh, which the Lord used to free me from an enslaving addiction to pornography. So I was hopeful that he would use Regen to bring greater freedom in other areas of my life as well. But I was blind to the depth of my sin. Uh, my heart at the time was cold and distant from God. I was trying to manage life on my own, uh, dwelling on things that had happened in the past, letting bitterness control me. In my marriage, I lacked deep emotional connection with Ashley and was not being a strong spiritual leader in my home. I knew something was off in my heart, but I hadn't been willing to put in the time and emotional energy to get to the bottom of it. But over the 10 months in Regen, through daily homework, a weekly meeting, and specifically through the inventory process, uh, God opened my eyes to see something I knew theologically, but couldn't admit humbly, that I am the problem. It's not anyone else. It's not a difficult situation or circumstance. It's me. 
Um, I would spend so much time and energy trying to rationalize my sin away or pin the blame on someone else. Um, I refuse to take ownership of my sin, to confess it and repent of it. Um, I tried to hide, to cover it up, to pretend that it's not there. And looking back, no wonder I felt stuck. Uh, the biggest roadblock for me was in the areas of vulnerability and transparency, which I've shared a little bit about before. Um, I had developed decades of hardness, not truly being known, not allowing others to see deeply inside my heart. Um, I developed some unhealthy patterns of isolation and withdrawal, which led to compromises with lustful temptation, a, a growing bitterness and resentful towards certain people, and a lack of connection and intimacy in my marriage. I was pretty much emotionally shut down. While trying to stay in control and manage life on my own, I wasn't really relying on the Lord. It was and still honestly is hard for me to let other people in, but through Regen, God has helped me take small but significant steps in areas of vulnerability and transparency. Uh, the guys in my uh, Regen group know me more deeply now, and through the inventory process, my Regen mentor and another friend know the deepest, darkest stuff that's been brewing in my head and heart for the last decade. I've confessed my inventory of sin to Ashley. I've shared my repentance plan with her as well. And I'm seeking to make amends for the ways that... For the ways that I've hurt her. over the eight years of our marriage. Uh, this has brought, as you'd expect, um, some brokenness, but also some greater freedom and joy in my life. So because of Christ, uh, today, though I still struggle in many areas, though I'm prone to wander at any time, to revert back to old patterns, I desire to walk more closely with Jesus every day and to walk more honestly and openly with trusted people who love me and care for me. Though some days are better than others, I am learning to surrender more and more of my whole self, my true self, my heart self, to Jesus, and to take little steps every day to do so. I'm learning to look and live, to see and be satisfied, to behold him and become more like him. I'm learning to turn my eyes upon Jesus. So that's a snapshot of my Regen story. And um, thank you for listening. Thank you for caring enough to listen. Um, so as we close today, would you help me by standing and singing this song together? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Sing it to me to encourage my heart to do so. And I'll sing it back to you to encourage your heart to do so every single day as we look fully upon him. Adore him and behold him. First of all, Brian, thank you for sharing your story and for being willing to share that with people that obviously you know and trust enough to open that part of your heart up. So I hope you cherish that and uh, honor what he has done uh, in hopes that maybe you would do the same. Because here's one of the things that I'm...
feel very certain of as it relates to what is happening in our world today, I want you to think about this. Is it not true that when you think about what's taking place with the virus and all the unrest that's in our world today, that there are two things that are happening as a result? One is it's pushing us towards what we are so inclined to in and of ourselves, and that is to live in isolation. Social distancing is, in many cases, a welcome relief to live the way I would normally want to live apart from other people. The second thing is, is that it has put us into clusters that are against each other, and it has created division within an already fractured culture. And I want us to at least recognize that to understand the importance of the passage that we just looked at this morning. Because that passage says, enter in. That passage says, listen to their story and be willing to share your own. And so in order for us to fulfill what that passage says, we're going to have to live very different than what the pattern of our culture is in our world today. And you're going to make, have to make extra efforts to do something that is countercultural because of all the changes that are taking place. And don't for a minute believe that those changes just are happenstance. There is a battle for people's souls going on. And there is an enemy who wants to work in a way to separate and create division. That's his craft. It's his handiwork. And so when we see it, we can recognize who's at work here. But in the midst of all that chaos, we need to keep hearing the voice of Jesus. We need to listen to his call to be known and to be loved and to be redeemed. And every one of us who belong to him have that story. In your bulletin, I gave you a little uh, handout with three very important truths that are part of Regen. It's how we begin. And I think if we could live these every single day, we would be in a much better place fulfilling the message of our passage this morning. It says to admit, to believe, and to trust. Admit we are powerless over our addictions, our brokenness, our sinful patterns, things that cause hurt in people that we love. That in our own power, our lives are unmanageable. And that we come to a place where we believe that God is the one who is the only one who has the power to fully restore us. And so like the man born blind, we trust him with our lives by accepting his grace through Jesus Christ. Admit, believe, and trust. So let me encourage you to take those words to heart and to apply them every single day. Be willing to humbly listen to another person's story and be vulnerable enough to share your own. And I think if we can be committed to those truths that the Bible calls us to, we will begin to see the redemption that is promised through the work of his people. So let me pray for us and you can be dismissed. Lord, thank you for that reminder this morning. Even when our eyes have been opened, it's easy for them to be closed to the truth that is right in front of us. So I pray that we hear it clearly this morning that it speaks deeply to our hearts, that we are willing to live with transparency and sharing our story because of the humility of knowing how much we need you.
and how much this world needs you as well. Protect us from passing judgment and give us the courage to enter in. And let us see not reasons to condemn, but ways that you might redeem. That's your story. May we live it faithfully. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you. And have a great day.